0: So the question I want to ask is uh, whether metaphysics presupposes natural philosophy. And uh, that question is something which I think outside of this college is much more controverted than it is inside the college. Most people here I think probably agree more or less. and, and when I say that metaphysics outside uh, would be controverted, there's some difference there. Some people will say, no, it does presuppose natural philosophy, but the reasons they would give would be different reasons sometimes. So there's, there's lots of different positions to take into account. I'm not going to try to take into account all these different opinions. Um, what I'm going to try to do is give a reason or give an argument, I should say, for um, the necessity of natural philosophy before metaphysics uh, not uh, simply to establish that there is such a science right that 's what i 'm trying to show, so there may be other reasons, for example, somebody might say, "Well, I have to do natural philosophy to study uh, in the deema right? I need to find out what the intelligence is. I need to find out that it 's immaterial. I need to find out that knowing is an immaterial reception um, there's all kinds of things I could do in the deanama that will be useful in in uh, metaphysics, and so you 'd have to study those things before you do uh, metaphysics. But that wouldn't establish the subject of metaphysics. It wouldn't establish that there is such a thing as metaphysics. So I'm, I'm more concerned with how you establish that there is such a thing as metaphysics to start with, right, let alone uh, there's lots of reasons that you would want to do natural philosophy first. But I'm trying to find the formal reason. What I would tend to think of as the formal reason, the most fundamental reason. So uh, there are lots of reasons, like I say, but I'm going to try to look at one. So there's some preliminaries I want to think about, first of all. Um, you have to ask, I think, uh, what science is and how we attain it. What kinds of principles does it have? And here, uh, obviously, I'm not thinking about science in the uh, sense of Bacon or or, uh, or Newton or Einstein. I'm not thinking about kind of experimental science, uh, mathematical science of nature, that kind of thing. I'm thinking more of science, as Aristotle talks about it, in the posterior analytics. Um, and so in that sense of science... Um, Science is a syllogism or a series of syllogisms, the premises of which are self-evident principles. So, I don't think that's true about experimental science. That's not the way it proceeds. But in these um, in Aristotelian science, that's what you're aiming for, even if it's kind of hard to get to it. That is what you're aiming for. Uh, so, when you think about a syllogism, it's got a middle term, right? There's, there's a there's a, a word an expression that you use to connect the major and minor terms, and that middle term in science has to be the definition of the subject. So we proceed to a scientific understanding of mobile being from the definition of what's formal in the notion of mobile being, namely motion or change. We have a science of triangles based on the definition of triangle. So we're not looking at and experimental evidence about triangles, right? We, we try to start from definitions and work out properties based on that. That definition then becomes a middle term in our syllogism, in our first syllogism at least, uh, and then we use it to so, show that some property or properties belong to the subject as such. So, uh, so then I'm asking the question. Next question I want to ask is, how do you distinguish the sciences? Now, uh, for a lot of you, if you've read the... Uh, St. Thomas's commentary on Boethius' De Trinitate, much of the next part is going to be uh, pretty familiar to you. Um, but a lot of you haven't, so let's do that. In distinguishing sciences from each other, St. Thomas argues that sciences should be divided by the sorts of definitions we have of the subjects. He concludes to this as follows. Because science is a kind of knowledge, it should be divided according to the degree of knowability or intelligibility, of the subject, science is a knowing, so you should divide according to ways you know. Right? This amounts to saying that sciences should be divided by the sort of definitions we give of the subjects, for the intelligibility of the subject is reflected in the sort of definition we can give. So it seems to me immediately there's a question: How can some definitions be more intelligible than others? Well, one way is by being wrong or right, right? Um, some some definitions may be less intelligible simply because they're not very good definitions of their subject. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a perfection or imperfection that is uh, in in proportion to the subject. So even if you have as good a definition as you can get of some things, still some definitions are going to be clearer, more intelligible than others. So the definition of a triangle, three-sided plane figure, is intrinsically more intelligible than the definition of motion, the act of the potential as such even if both are as good a definition of their respective subjects as you're going to find. The difference is in the sorts of things you're trying to define. An abstract mathematical being or a concrete physical becoming. The one is removed from matter and motion. The other is mired in matter and is motion. Let us look a little more a little more at the possible ways that matter and motion can be involved in the definition. So, I'm suggesting that there's, uh, in the definitions themselves, even if they're as good as they can be, there may be differences in how intelligible the subject is, uh, and therefore how intelligible the definition is, and I'm going to argue that that depends on how much the definition includes matter, or how the definition includes matter. So first of all, I want to say, uh, argue that uh, it is, in fact, due to the presence or absence of matter that things are more or less intelligible. So... First, because the human mind is immaterial, its object must be in some way immaterial. When I know what man is, I know this universally, that is, without the individuating principle of matter. To know man, I must know that man is a material thing, that he's made of flesh and bone. But I do not and cannot know, uh, with my mind, the individual flesh and bone the individual matter that constitutes Socrates. There's no definition of Socrates as opposed to the definition of man, right? There's no, I can't, I can't find in a definition individual matter that makes this man be this man, right? So the drawing out, or in Latin abstractio, of the universal nature of man from the individual men leaves behind the matter that makes man individual. This removal from matter is due to the nature of my mind. Man, as he exists outside my mind, is always individual, but in my mind, he's always universal. Since the human mind receives even material things in this immaterial way, it must itself be immaterial. And so, from the point of view of the power of the mind, things are intelligible to the extent that they're removed from matter. I'm arguing that it, because the human mind is an immaterial thing and because when we know what we're doing is somehow receiving the thing into our mind, somehow we're receiving the thing into our mind, uh, it has to be received according to the mode of the receiver. It has to be received the way I can receive it or the way my mind can receive it. It's an immaterial thing. It's got to be re- received in an immaterial way in some sense, and that means, I think, leaving matter behind in some sense. Right? So another way we can look at the question of what makes this definitions more or less intelligible, intelligible is by looking at what science is. Aristotle argues that we only have a science of necessary things, and St. Thomas agrees with that. If a thing could be otherwise, my claims about it could become false without their having changed at all. If Socrates is seated, and I think he's seated, I'm right. But if I continue to think he is when he gets up, I'm wrong, even though I haven't changed my mind. In fact, it's my not changing my mind that's the problem. So if a science is to be a stable knowledge, and the the Greek word for a science that's used by Aristotle, episteme, has somewhat that sense of a stability, it means a standing at the end of the road, episteme, right? Um, So it has a notion of stability. Uh, It will have to be about things that are not able to be otherwise, or in other words, about things that are necessary in some sense, right? Um, But what is in motion is to that extent not necessary but changeable, and therefore not a fit subject for science. Okay. So since things are objects of speculative science insofar as they're without matter and motion, and the divisions of science should not be made on just any basis, but on the basis of what belongs to the sciences as such, St. Thomas concludes, quote, speculative sciences are distinguished according to the order of remotion from matter and motion. So what I'm arguing here is that um, just like you wouldn't divide triangles into red, white, and blue, but you divide them into what belongs to triangles as such, maybe isosceles, scalene, and equilateral. So you want to divide science. Is not according to just any difference, like medieval science and modern science, but, um, but according to differences that have to do with the very intelligibility of the thing you're talking about. Right? And that seems to be tied to the notion of mat- being material or immaterial. So all of this is, by the way, I'm, I'm getting out of the De Trinitate commentary. There's other texts that are parallel texts, but that's the main one. Okay. It will be useful to think a little more about this idea of remotion from matter and how it's found in different sciences. It sounds a little funny, remotion from matter. The word remotio, the Latin word there, might be translated removal. So the sense is that when we think of an object, we think of it without the matter that is somehow conjoined with that object in reality. This is properly speaking what abstraction from matter means, right? So abstraction means drawing out from the matter. You're removing something from the matter, right? In the case of the natural sciences, we think of things like man or electron, and we treat them universally, not as individuals. There is no science of Socrates or of this particular electron, only a science of man or of electrons in general. In order to think of man in general, we do have to think of flesh and bones. So we abstract only from the particular matter in which the natures are, uh, we're concerned with actually exist, that material, in the case of natural science, is called individual sensible matter. That's the name that St. Thomas gives it. Individual because it belongs to this one man, for example, and not to man in general. So it makes Socrates be Socrates, right? It's what, he has that matter. Uh, and sensible because we're aware of it through its sensible properties like hardness or color. And yet in natural science we still must retain what is referred to as common sensible matter, matter like flesh and bone in general rather than this flesh and this bone. We cannot think of man except as composed of flesh and bone. So our general consideration of man must still look to a sort of matter, so-called common matter. So that's all about natural philosophy. In natural philosophy your definitions include Sensible, common sensible matter, flesh and bone or something like that, right? You always have to be thinking about what the thing's made out of. That's one of the principles of the nature of the thing, so you have to think about it. The things we deal with in mathematics are likewise abstracted or removed from matter, but in a different way. First, we remove from our consideration sensible qualities. We're not concerned as to whether our triangles are hard or soft, bronze or plastic, By removing from our consideration sensible qualities, we also remove from consideration sensible matter, since the sensible matter is understood as what underlies sensible quality. Um, Unlike natural science, mathematics has no concern with the world of sensation. We proceed incorrectly if we think we need to judge our mathematics by how it lines up with the sensible world. In this way, mathematics and natural philosophy obviously differ. In In natural philosophy, that's the criterion, right? whether it matches the world. But the two sciences are alike in that we do retain something like matter in both cases. St. Thomas calls the matter in mathematics intelligible matter. For example, a triangle is made of three lines. These lines are the material from which the triangle is made. But these materials are not defined with sensible qualities like hot and cold, but are removed from sensible qualities. A sign of that is maybe every freshman has this experience, I think. When you first read the definitions in Euclid, you have about a week-long or a few-day-long few anyway argument about whether those things really exist in the physical world, and then after that, you couldn't care less, right? Um, after that, you just do your math, and, and it doesn't even, you don't think that that affects the truth or falsity of what you're doing. So in some way, looking at the way things are in the sensible world doesn't seem to be the right criterion there. So we remove sensible matter. Um, so the mathematicals are more abstract because they are removed from the condition of the individual sensible things we see around us, more abstract from the, than the natural things. Nevertheless, here too we have both universal and particular, both the universal nature of triangle and this particular triangle. So mathematics like natural philosophy is about the universal and necessary nature, necessary natures abstracted from particular matter, but the mathematical objects are yet more abstract or more removed from matter. Metaphysics is, in a way, easier, I think, easier than mathematics, because in mathematics, you want to say, oh, look, it's removed from sensible matter, but there's still a kind of matter there. Well, what's that? right? And so you have to think about that. In, in metaphysics, it seems it's easier because it's more of a simple negation. You say, okay, they don't include matter in their definition. We're done. right?" Um, so the case of mathemat- metaphysics is a easier easier to grasp, there are some things, the definitions of which include no matter at all, neither sensible nor intelligible, neither common nor individuating. God and angels are purely spiritual beings and neither exist in nor are defined by matter. So, too, being and one, right, the notion of being the notion of one, are found not only in material and mathematical things, but even in those immaterial things. There is one God. Gabriel is one angel, um, God is a being, sort of. Though being in one can exist in material things, they can also exist outside material things. Consequently, they too can be defined without sensible or intelligible matter. So there seem to be two kinds of subjects that could be defined without matter. Right, There's the ones that must exist without matter, like an angel or a God, right? and there's the ones which are sort of predicated commonly, of immaterial and material things like being, one, etc. So insofar as they're predicated, at least insofar as they're predicated of immaterial things, they're not going to, they're not going to include matter in their definition. Right? At least that's true. So um, so that's why metaphysics is way easier to grasp, because you can just say, well, there's just no matter in, them, in the definitions. Right? So it's a simple negation. So to return to our main point, from the point of view of the power of knowing, namely the mind, and... The point of view of the thing known, the subject of science, we come to the same conclusion that sciences are what they are by remotion or removal from matter. Physics considers the nature of mobile beings but not their individual matter. Mathematics considers natures which are found in matter but are defined without sensible matter. And metaphysics considers natures which are not defined with matter and which may either may or do exist without matter. Since we should divide things by differences which are essential to them, and sciences are what they are by remotion from matter, we should divide sciences by how they are more or less remote from matter. So I think that's St. Thomas' argument in the De Trinitati Commentary, Question 5, Article 1. Here's um, something that people sometimes get wrong. We should take particular note that the division of the sciences is not in terms of mere generality. Just as there are particular plants which share the nature plant, so there are particular triangles which share the nature triangle. And just as biology is about the kind of thing a plant is in abstraction from individual plants, so mathematics is about the kind of thing triangles are in abstraction from individual triangles. Nor are mathematics and natural science distinct from each other because one is more universal than the other. So within each science you have universal and particular. Um, So that can't be what distinguishes the sciences. Moreover, they are distinct, but not distinct because their one is more universal than the other. So that's not the principle. Rather, they are distinct because the notion of matter enters their definitions in different ways and so gives rise to different degrees of intelligibility. Generality or universality are found in all the sciences so that the abstraction of the universal from the particular cannot be the unique mark of any one science nor, therefore, its defining characteristic. So our first preliminary notion, I'm I'm going to give you two preliminary notions. I'm just finishing the first one. So our first preliminary notion is that the sciences are not distinguished by generality, but by the way they define their subjects, with sensible matter, without sensible matter, but with intelligible matter, or without any matter at all. St. Thomas gives an argument that there's no fourth possibility, but we won't worry about that. The second preliminary notion we need to look at is this. Science is about uh, a thing. It's not about a nothing or a fiction or an illusion. What I mean is that we don't have science about things that are not real in any way. We might think this means we can't have knowledge or science about dodo birds or dinosaurs and though there may be reasons that we don't have science about those things it's not because they're the wrong sorts of beings by mere dint of happening not to exist right now. That's not the problem. Were all the triangles to be somehow wiped out, the science of geometry would be unchanged, right? This science would still be true. So, so it's not it's not the real existence outside the mind right now that's important. Science is not about the contingent particular or about the sorts or kinds of things uh, but, sorry, but about the sorts or kinds of things and their properties. We do not study triangle ABC, but the nature of triangle. Though, of course, we have to have in mind a particular triangle like ABC to do so. So if science is about what's real, that still does not mean that the subject has to exist outside my mind when I'm thinking about it. But science is also not just about fictions. Except insofar as even fictions, are some sorts of beings in the mind or imagination? I can have a st- science of illusions. You know, I can have s- psychologists can study hallucinations or something. Right? Um, we can have a science of poetics dealing with properties of good fiction, but we don't have a science about the particular fictions we make up, like hobbits. Whether we invent the fiction deliberately for the sake of entertainment, or unwittingly by committing an error, makes no difference. There's no science of phlogiston any more than there's one of hobbits. However much some scientists may have believed at one point that that hypothetical substance really existed. They didn't have science about phlogiston, they had its polar opposite error. It may even be the case that they were not merely positing something fictional as the cause of combustion, but something self-contradictory. For if I do not see even if I do not see any contradiction in the notion of phlogiston, does not follow that there is none, just as my not seeing that the idea of a greatest prime number is self-contradictory does not mean that it is not. So the illusion, in some cases like that, you get an illusion of science because you can say stuff about this thing you're thinking about, right? So that illusion, I think, arises because of the rational being of the supposed subject, the being it has in virtue of being in my mind. To use St. Thomas's example, if men were asses, men would be irrational, He says that's a true statement, despite the fact that both the antecedent and the consequent are not only false but absurd. The truth of such a statement does not concern some real thing. It is merely about the connection between the antecedent and the consequent of my sentence. The if-then statement is true even though the antecedent is false or absurd. When we study something which is a self-contradiction, that's the best you can do. Recognize what would be true if something absurd could be true. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride. That was Mr. Berquist's favorite example. And if we do not recognize that what we are studying is self-contradictory, it remains nonetheless true that the only truth our statement contains is that one statement follows from the other. That's all you've got. Failing to see that a subject can really exist is then a real problem. I may well say that if wishes were horses, beggars would ride, or that angels are individuated by their forms. But unless I can see that the antecedent of my conditional statement is true, or that the subject of my argument is a real sort of thing, I'm fettered to a merely rational being, at least as far as I know. I do not come to know the truths I may perchance enunciate until such time as I can tether my knowledge to reality. "'Science is an assimilation of the mind to reality, "'and if I don't even know that my subject exists, "'there is no such assimilation. "'I may, for all I know, be speaking of an absurdity "'when I blithely argue about phlogiston "'or celestial spheres or duck-billed platypuses. "'Without some evidence, we don't know that this "'or that is not a self-contradiction. "'Ignorance is not bliss, "'and not seeing a problem with an idea "'is not the same thing as seeing that there is no problem.' So St. Thomas says, this is um, from the Commentary on the posterior Analytics, For because there is no quiddity or essence of a non-being, no one is able to know the what it is about what does not exist. But one is able to know the signification of the name or the notion composed from many names, just as one is able to know what this name, goat stag, signifies, because it signifies a certain animal composed from a goat and a stag. But it is impossible to know the what it is of a goat stag because there's no such thing in Rerum Natura. A little later, he adds, it is vain to seek what a thing is if one does not know that it is. I think that's a really important sentence. So again, it is vain to seek what a thing is if one does not know that it is. Merely knowing the meaning of a name is not enough to start a science. We must understand that the subject exists and advance in our knowledge from what it is and of its properties from that point. That's why Aristotle argues that to have science, we must know both that the subject exists and what it is. That's in the second chapter of the first book of the Posture Analytics. The meaning of the name, the quid nominis, may, after all, refer to a complete absurdity. If I say, blitrig means 17-sided regular solid, blitrig was Father McGovern's favorite made-up word, um, I know the meaning of the name, but I I may well be ignorant that there can be no such thing as Euclid proves. So the mere fact that I know the meaning of the word doesn't mean I can have a science of 17-sided regular uh, solid. Thus, if we do not know that a thing exists, not in the sense that it really exists outside my mind as I think about it, at the time I think about it, I mean, but in the sense that there is such a sort of thing, We cannot have science of it since science is not about non beings but about beings. So, the sorts of beings about which we have science are beings which have real natures, whether they are uh, actual or potential, and about which we know that they have real natures. These are the beings, for example, in the ten categories. We experience the ten categories. You might argue about whether they're all really distinct from each other, that's fine. Still, you know they're real. We can have a science of animals or of plants, of squares or of numbers. In these cases, there are ways of knowing that the things we wish to study are in fact beings and not impossibilities. Sometimes we can simply look out at the world and find the thing we're looking for. If it really exists outside my mind, it clearly harbors no hidden self-contradiction. Even things that might seem to do so are proven not to if they actually show up in my experience. Duck-billed platypus is a mammal that lays eggs. You might have suspected that that's a contradiction, but... The thing is there in front of us, so there's no more room for doubt on that. We know they're possible. Other things in natural science might be known to really exist from an argument which is based on things we know really exist. So, for example, we come to the idea of electromagnetic waves from studying things that seem quite remote from the notion of waves, but the equations for which lead necessarily to a wave equation for an electromagnetic field propagating at the speed of light. If we can say that that argument is a solid argument, then we know that electromagnetic waves are not self-contradictions, precisely because we prove they exist given things we have in our experience. So in a way, as I'll say again later, the principle there is act is before potency, right? You have to you can't the mere possibility, you can't get you can't get reality out of possibility. You have to get reality out of another reality, right? It has to either be in front of you or 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 if it's not directly in front of you, you have to uh, somehow base w- w- what you're saying on something that's directly in front of you if you're going to know that the thing's a real possibility and not just an absurdity of some sort. Okay. So, in physics, you either have experience of the thing or you argue from experience. In mathematics, it could be a little harder, at least in one way. Is there a reality called square? a really possible configuration of four equal lines joined at four right angles? We may think the answer is obvious, but we can't simply resolve to our sense experience here. If mathematics defines without sensible matter, as St. Thomas teaches, then looking at the world as given to us in sensation is insufficient. We might see things that are square enough for practical purposes, but are they absolutely square, perfectly square, the sorts of squares the geometer considers? The only way to know would be to measure the sides and the angles, but every physical measurement has a degree of imprecision built into it. The measurement is always something like 1.7 meters plus or minus 0.01 meters or something like that, and that's not good enough for geometry. That doesn't give you geometry. Um, So if we're going to study geometrical objects, we need to know they exist in some way, but we can't know just from looking at sensation. So how do we know that squares or other geometrical objects have no latent absurdities, we cannot know simply by intuition. That's a dangerous path and one which can lead to serious errors. I want to say simply by intuition. Right? We all think at first that you can fit a straight line between a tangent to a circle and the circle's circumference, but you could prove otherwise. We all think at first that there's a unit small enough to perfectly measure any two lines, but we can prove that that's impossible in the case of the side and the, of a square and its diagonal. Neither intuition nor sense experience is sufficient then. So what do we do? What we must do is construct the objects we wish to study, prove that they're possible from things we know already to be possible. St. Thomas understands the very first proposition of Euclid as a construction proving the existence of an equilateral triangle. Uh, so he does that. St. Thomas discusses that case in uh, commentary in Posterior Analytics Book uh, 1, Lexio 2. Um, So, so he thinks of that first proposition, you know, you draw the two circles and you have the triangle, as, as showing you the possible reality of a triangle, right, the, or the reality of the triangle. So you could disagree with that. Um, but even if you think the possibility of a triangle is too obvious to need such verification, you couldn't say that about the 20-sided regular solid that you find in Book 13, right? You can't intuit that that's possible. The only way we know that it is possible is by making one, as Euclid does in Book 13. The geometer must construct at least certain of his objects in order to know that they are really possible. So he must also, obviously, assume some things in his act of construction. For example, in the first proposition, he assumes the third postulate, that he can draw a circle with any given center and radius. It seems that this act is understood as possible, Given the mere homogenous matter which the mind understands to underlie sensible matter, um, quality, excuse me, and which is that which the mind can abstract from sensible matter, so as to have a new kind of abstract being and a new science. So what I'm saying there is it seems like it's based on the idea of the continuum. You get the idea of the continuum. That's abstracted, and then everything else is constructed from there. Um, We need to see that square can really exist in any case before we'd have a science of it. And in the case of math, it's a little tricky because you can't just look at sensation. So how do you do it? And you can't just say, well, they seem like they work. So people are often shocked by the fact that if you ask them to, to construct a, try to construct a square not using the fifth postulate, you can't do it, right? It's surprising. I think most people think it's evident that you can construct a square, right? But they don't realize they're assuming the fifth postulate to do so. Right? So that, that's just a sh- sign, maybe, that... Um, there's more to it that you need. You need to do some work to see that's a real possibility. So to sum up, for there to be a science of a subject, that subject must be real, and we have to know it's real, not in the sense that it actually exists outside the mind right now or ever, but in the case, uh, in the sense rather, of being a possible nature. Moreover, for that nature to be the subject of a science other than physics or mathematics, it will have to have a new mode of definition, where the per se differences of the modes of definition have to do with the way matter enters into the definition. Right? So if there's going to be another science besides physics and math, it's going to, we're going to have to say, okay, there's something which is defined without matter and motion at all, I'm going to have to know it exists. Right? Now that's controverted. So the next part here is um, trying to take those preliminaries and apply it to the case of metaphysics and see what follows. The question is, is another mode of definition available? We have already seen that the third mode would be the one which has no reference to material at all. Is there anything real which would be so defined? Are there nonsensible qualities as there are nonsensible quantities? There is intelligible matter. Is there intelligible form? Perhaps wisdom is an example of such a quality of form, but without proof, you can't assume that its definition is really separable from matter. Many thinkers believe that thought, and therefore wisdom, is just a material phenoma- phenomenon. And one cannot assume otherwise without some argument. I was uh, kind of surprised to find that even St. Augustine says for years he could conceive of nothing beyond material being. I mean, the man is brilliant, right? And he wasn't able to see without argument that there could be such a thing as an immaterial thing. Right? He says that's why he was a Manichee for so long. That's in Book 5, Chapter 10. Um, Okay, so I'm going to try to go through some possible ways that you, to avoid, avoid the idea that you need to uh, prove that's an immaterial thing. So we might think we can bypass such an argument, go directly to metaphysics, because St. Thomas will frequently describe the subject of metaphysics as universal being or being as being. So you might think that there could be a science of metaphysics just because there's a universal name, being. Even Aristotle even says that you should start with a more universal. Not only it seems like you should study you could study this thing, but you should study it and first, because it's the most universal name. Maybe you have to study logic first. So the word being seem, certainly does seem to name something more universal than does mobile being, which is a subject of natural philosophy or quantified being, the subject of mathematical philosophy, if we want to call it that. Um, But there are problems with taking things as simply as this, thinking thinking we can simply depend on universality. Most obviously, a new science demands a new mode of definition, as we've already seen, and mere generality does not do the trick. Just as the study of plants and mobile being in general both belong to one sort of science, so would being and mobile being. Unless that greater generality is accompanied by a new mode of definition, a new degree of separation from matter, so mere generality is not going to do the trick, because for all you know, all the principles that enter into every being are the same principles that enter into mobile being. There's another problem here. Uh, it's implicit. The assumption here seems to be that because there's no overt reference to, me- to matter in the meaning of being, one can immediately grasp that there is a science which transcends matter one which studies being universally without restricting itself to uh, material being, and that therefore there is a science which has a new mode of definition. Take away mobile, and we have left being, which does not depend on matter for its concept. That's easy. But this is a mistake. It is true that the meaning of the word being does not include an overt reference to matter, but it doesn't follow that there really is an immaterial being, or even that we can even conceive of it, except as a quid nominis, in the same way that we can entertain the notion of greatest prime number. As Aristotle says, quote, if there is not some substance besides those constituted by nature, physics would be first philosophy. That's in Metaphysics 6.1. Um, For the actual principles of being as such would simply be the principles of mobile being. There would be no new kind of thing to study, or at best, but at best, a new set of names. If natural beings are all that can exist, then potency is simply reducible to matter and its consequences. Act is correlative to matter. Being is always and only the result of the union of such a matter and such a form, and unity is convertible with that sort of being. There would be no other really existent principles but those of physical things. There would be neither any new subject to be studied nor any new principles nor even any new way to understand the old principles. There's just nothing new there. Thus, it turns out that we may have been too generous when we said that the primitive notion of being was more general than the notion of mobile being. If there are no immaterial beings, then being is not really more general, it's just more obscure. And it's a more perfect way of saying mobile being. On the other hand, if we treat being as if it were applicable to immaterial things without knowing the first thing about them, namely that they exist we would be resolving to a quid nominis of a mystery, a mystery about which we are not even assured that is not merely the absurd expression of our own ignorance. We have already seen that proceeding on the grounds of terms like these uh, is merely looking at an ens rationis, and that our, that's a being of reason, and that our propositions about them are never really about reality but about the relations among our thoughts. If armed only with such knowledge of the meaning of the name, I argue that angels, because they are immaterial, are individuated by their forms. I am no better off than if I argue that hobbits, because they are childlike, are fit carriers of the ring. Both statements are true, though they have no bearing on reality, and it's silly to call those inferences science. They are true simply due to the relations between the antecedents and the consequence. The grounding of the antecedent and so of the whole statement in extra mental reality would require that I know that angels or hobbits are actual things and not just figments of my imagination. Thus, unless we can show that somehow that immobile beings are real, possible natures, metaphysics is only a fancy name for natural philosophy. So what is needed is a new mode of definition that is not related to matter, as are the definitions of mathematics and physics, and the knowledge that some things so defined actually exist. Um, let's see, I'm going to skip some stuff here. So I think there are four possible uh, ways you might try to approach that, right? So the first thing I said was, oh, just start from the universal name. Universals are, the universal name doesn't imply matter, doesn't, doesn't name matter, so we're good to go, right? Um, now I want to go through four possibilities, and they're based on the four ways we can know. The first way is experience. The second way is uh, first act of the mind, abstraction. Second, third way would be the second act of the mind, which is judgment or separation, or judgment, right? Statements, in other words. And the third act of the mind, uh, reason. So so I'm going to try to argue that the first three d- will not do the trick and therefore we're stuck with the fourth. The first possibility is based on a direct experience of immaterial being. Some might hold, for example, that we know by direct interior experience that our intellect are immaterial. Unless this experience is common to all men, they're really claiming to have a special knowledge accessible only to the cognoscenti and to be using that knowledge as the basis of their science. This seems a little far-fetched as the basis of a science had by nature, since nature is common to all. It may be the case, in fact I think it is the case, that God can vouchsafe to anyone he chooses a direct knowledge of his essence. Such a person would surely know with absolute certitude that there are immaterial beings and could speculate on the nature of such a being. The experience of such a person would stand to his new science as does sense experience to natural philosophy. That is, it would constitute a direct and unmediated evidence for the existence of the subject of the science. But others could only take him at his word, even if he could back up his claims with miracles and prophecies. We would not have the knowledge ourselves we would just have the knowledge that we probably should believe this guy so that can't be the basis a second possible route is to seeing that they're immaterial things is uh, that of um, Avon Pace I guess he's an Arabic philosopher whose real name was Ibn Bhaja. Um in the Summa St. Thomas reports that Avon Pace held that one could abstract from material things the essences of immaterial things the argument goes like this quote For since our intellect is naturally apt to abstract the quiddity of a material thing from material, if in that quiddity there is again something material, it will be able to abstract again. And since this can't go to infinity at length, it will be able to arrive at understanding some quiddity, which is wholly without matter. And this is to understand immaterial substance. So that's St. Thomas' presentation of the argument. That's in... um, first part of the Summa, Question 88, Article 2, Corpus. We might argue that this process, if it could occur, would only show us what immaterial things are, not that they are. And we've already noted that those are different. But it seems that that response misses the point here. If we really could abstract such an essence, it would, by that fact, be known to be possible, for it would exist in the thing from which we're abstracting it. That's what abstraction is. Taking out of the thing in front of you some ratio, some notion, some concept, right? Um, So if it's there in front of you, you'd know it's possible because there it is. It would be just like the abstraction of any other universal. Just as we can draw the notion of plant out from particular plants we see around us, and that's how we know the nature plant is a possible nature, so would we abstract this supposed immaterial essence. The very fact that we could abstract it from what is before us would prove it's real and the grasp of the real possibility of such an essence would then be sufficient to ground a new science. St. Thomas criticizes this view. (coughs) Here is what he says. Quote, This would be said efficaciously if immaterial substances were the forms and species of these material things, as the Platonists posit. But if we do not posit this, but suppose that immaterial substances are of a wholly other notion from the quiddities of material things. However much our intellect might abstract the quiddity of a material thing from matter, it would never arrive at something similar to immaterial substance. And therefore we are not able to understand immaterial substances perfectly through material substances. So what I want to emphasize there is the second sentence. If we do not posit this, but posit that immaterial substances are of a wholly other nature from the quiddities of material things. Right? So St. Thomas is saying that we cannot abstract the quiddity of an immaterial thing from a material thing for the simple reason that it's not there in the material thing. If immaterial things are of a wholly other nature, notion, than material things, then the notions we get from material things will never be the same as the notions of immaterial things, since abstraction is only the drawing out of one notion from another. We cannot arrive at the notions of immaterial things from material things by way of abstraction, this is exactly why he says that Avempace's notion of simple abstraction being a road to the knowledge of immaterial things is an error. So, you can't get it out of the thing because it's not there to be gotten out. If it's an if the notion that you're trying to get to is another notion from the one that was there. Secondly, though he says St. Thomas, that is, says that this is so if we suppose he says, right. Uh, that the immaterial substances are of a wholly other nature than material quiddities, seeming to put all under the shadow of a mere conjecture, his conclusion is straightforward, that we are simply unable to understand immaterial substances perfectly through material ones, and this because they are of a wholly other nature. How he knows they are of another nature, he doesn't say. But if they are indeed of a wholly other nature, you can't abstract that other nature from the one in front of you. It's not there to be abstracted. You can't get blood from a turnip and you can't get an angel from a potato. It's not there, right? So it's just not in the thing in front of you. So the upshot of all this is that immaterial things are of such a profoundly different sort from material things that we cannot divine what they are by looking at what's present in material things. Because this is so, the names which we use of immaterial and of material things, like being, one, potency, act, and so on, are not univocal but analogous. The only way they could be univocal is if the natures they named were the same, and if they were the same, then we could abstract the notion of an immaterial thing from a material thing. St. Thomas even says that the name quiddity itself is equivocal when said of immaterial and material things. Quote, Quiddity and all such names are said altogether equivocally of sensible things and of those namely immaterial substances. That's the uh, Commentary on De Trinitate again, uh, Question 6, Article 2, I think. It is not obvious then from direct experience or from abstraction from direct experience that immaterial substances can exist at all since we have no actual contact with such things by our natural knowledge of material things. So you can't see they're possible that way. So uh, I'm going to move right on to the third possibility. So rather than think we have... So the first possibility was direct experience, the second one was abstraction, now the third one. Rather than think we have direct experience of immaterial things or that we can abstract the real nature of immaterial uh, things from the material things which are our mind's proper objects, we might think we can, based on our direct experience of the natural world, separate by an act of judgment, something which transcends matter from the material things in front of us. And I'm using the word separate there sort of in a technical sense. I mean a negative judgment, right? Not an abstraction, but saying A is not B, right? That's a, that's a separation. And that's the way St. Thomas uses the word separation in Question 5, Article 3 of the uh, De Trinitate Commentary. Um, this would differ from the possibility just considered because the act of the mind would not simply be an abstraction but a judgment, something not of the first but of the second act of reason I do not wish to address every take on this here but to consider what would be necessary for any such claim and whether it's really a path to metaphysics. I think this position is actually the position that a lot of Thomists hold in one form or another but the form is often other. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's lots of different, slightly different takes on this so I'm going to try to argue uh, give a universal argument the argument might go something like this this is the argument for the other side when we grasp a being ends we grasp it as possible because we see that it really does exist in front of us if we know by abstraction and the first thing we grasp in the first operation of the mind as saint thomas says is ends or a being then we must grasp ends by abstraction but the name ends is taken from essay as saint thomas says ends is quod est, that which is, or quod habit esse, what has being. So immediately upon grasping the first object of the mind, we see that something exists, and this is a judgment, that this exists. That's a judgment, a statement, not the simple abstraction of equidity. The notion of existence is given to us immediately, or very nearly so, certainly not by way of some lengthy argument in natural philosophy. And since essay or existence is not necessarily material, we can judge by a separation that non-material being is possible. <clears throat> we seem to have arrived at the beginning of metaphysics already. But I suggest that there is a serious problem here too. For it's not obvious... And it's going to be the same argument. For it's not obvious that essay as grasped in this thought can be applied to something immaterial. The problem is the old one. We think because we see no problem, there is no problem as if our intellect with its flickering light is the measure of all things we do not see that it is possible for a thing to be taking thing as broadly as you please unless we see an example of it actually before us or else we infer that given what we do actually see in front of us the thing in question must be to belabor the point the fact that we do not see that a thing is impossible does not mean that we see that it is possible Secondly, and more particularly, it's a commonplace in St. Thomas that the essay of a material thing arises in some sense from the union of form and matter of a material thing. A statue comes to be when the sculptor puts a shape into clay, and a man comes to be when a soul is united to a body. Whether one thinks that that's all there is to it, or one thinks that such a union is only a, only presupposed to the act of essay, essay, existence, of the material thing, it remains that the notion of essay in material things is intimately linked to the union of form and matter, that it is either the same thing as that union, or is the act of what is so united, or somehow involves both. In any case, the essay one can understand from material things is not univocally named with the one which, which any immaterial substance would have, for the latter obviously would have no reference to matter in its notion. As St. Thomas says in the Quotlibetal Questions, Question 2, or Quotlibetal 2, Question 2, Article 2, I think, nothing is common to the perpetual and to the corruptible, except in name. That's a strong statement. He's quoting Aristotle when he says that. If so, then not only essential names, but even the name essay is only common in name. That is, it's equivocal. But if essay is equivocally named, we cannot understand it to transcend or even to be able to transcend materiality, just from seeing the essay in the material things around us, the problem is the same as that of the abstraction of an immaterial quiddity from a material thing. If it's equivocal, it's not there in the material thing to be understood in any way. Claiming that the act of the mind which seizes essay is the second and not the first act is to no purpose in the argument. Whence the error is the one, the one we saw before, assuming that our knowledge of a thing is the measure of its reality thinking that because we do not see any dependence on materiality in the notion that the notion is independent of materiality um, meaning in fact is, is right. even when I have a full understanding of it, it will still be uh, independent even if we draw from the argument I'm broadening the argument a little bit here because of the, what I said earlier that different people have slightly different takes on this Even if we drop from the argument the reference to essay and just say that we are able to separate out from the notion of mobile being the notion of some immaterial thing, we're no better off. It still remains that everything in the material substance before us is understood in reference to matter. Whether we think we can divine the possible immateriality of ends or essay or unum or res or bonum, etc., we are foiled by the need to understand all of these things by way of matter we cannot in any case merely negate the material element in our notions and stand in confidence of the coherence of the resulting notion. I might as well say that because my initial notion of water does not include hydrogen, I can have a science of hydrogen-free water. That's obviously absurd. Having seen that we cannot base metaphysics on experience of something supernatural or abstraction of liquidity. From something sensed or on a separation in judgment of essay or of anything else from quiddity or ends in something sensed, we are left with only one option. So this I'm claiming that I've done I'm done with the three other possibilities. I'm looking at the fourth one now, right? We must arrive at the notion of a thing to be defined without matter by way of a demonstrative argument from what is already known, namely material being. Neither direct experience nor the first act of the mind abstraction, nor the second act of the mind judgment taken apart from argument, can do the trick. We need the third act of the mind, argument. Four. So now I'm going to try to give a positive argument. We must begin from what we know and go to what we do not know. What we know first is the natural object of our mind. Because color is the proper, formal object of the mind, we see everything else we see by way of seeing color. As we see motion by seeing color and we see a man by seeing color, and we see a shape by seeing color, and so on. Following Aristotle, St. Thomas says that the proper object of the human mind is the quiddity of material things. If so, if so, we cannot know anything except by way of material things, just as we cannot see anything except by way of seeing color. In the commentary in the sentences, St. Thomas writes, quote, but our intellect is not proportioned knowing something by natural knowledge except through sensibles and therefore it is not able to arrive at pure intelligibles except by arguing. That's uh, the end of the quote. The arguments in question will, will result in negative judgments, separations but now they will be the conclusions of arguments grounded in an understanding of the things we directly experience not mere statements about the things that we directly experience. So that's the difference between the position I'm advocating and the third position that I was talking about. There, the judgment is simply based on my direct experience. I'm just making a statement about the things that are right in front of me. What I'm saying is, well, of course, you need judgments. You need to make statements. Um, and you need to talk about separations. You need to say, this is not material. Um, so you do need to make statements and use judgments. But those will be the conclusions of arguments. Right? They will be at the end of the argument. They won't be at the beginning of the argument. So the arguments in question will have to conclude to the existence of non-material realities. So just as an example, such an argument is given by Aristotle in the physics. He argues that there must be a first mover and this first mover must have infinite power but no body can have infinite power so we draw the negative conclusion that the first mover is not material. This separation or negative judgment is the sort of thing St. Thomas means when he says what that what characterizes metaphysics is separation he says that in De Trinitate uh, 5.3 and that's a text that, that a lot of the Thomists who want to hold the third position about judgment, uh, they rely on that text a lot um, it is the establishment of the existence of an immaterial substance by argument and the judgment that the thing in question is not material, that is the separation that St. Thomas talks about as grounding metaphysics Having understood the immaterial as a principle of something we grasp in the material world, in the example I've just given, that something is motion, we can ask what names we should give to our newly discovered object of thought. Well, because the quidnominess of the name being is very indeterminate and particular, in particular doesn't contain any overt reference to matter, it seems like an appropriate name to extend to the immaterial. This does not mean that it is univocal when said of the material and the immaterial. It is not so clearly equivocal as it would be were there overt reference to matter in its primary use. But that is neither here nor there with regard to the scientific understanding of being. It remains that the word is equivocal. So, trying to figure out how much time I have here. Thus the immaterial principle at which our argument arrives can be named being. Though only in an analogous way, an analogous word is nevertheless sufficient to provide unity to a science. You might think it isn't. You might say, well, how could there be one science if the word means different things? Right? Well, think of the word medical. Right? The word medical is the name of a science. There's a medical science. There's such a thing as a medical building. There's a scalpel, which is a medical tool. There's a man who's a doctor. He's a medical man. Right? Um, all those things are medical, and they all fall under the one science of medicine. But they're analogously named medical. They're not all medical in the same sense. Right? That's uh, Aristotle's ar- uh, example, I should say, in Metaphysics uh, 4.2, when he's arguing that there is, in fact, one science of metaphysics. Um, okay. So, to being is analogously said not only of the ten categories, but even of substances which are immaterial and of those which are material. It is uh, said, first of all, of the material substances and only later of the immaterial for we name things as we know them and we know the, ima- the material and then we know the immaterial so we name the one from the other but reflection does lead us to see that it's really the immaterial substances which better deserve the name substance and being because they are, they exist in a more stable way and because they are the principles or causes of the material beings and causes more and there may, may be other reasons too um, so before I go to the end, the very end, uh, there's an objection here. Um, actually, I think I'll skip this objection. It's getting long, and uh, it's, it's a little tricky to be clear about how it works. Um, basically, the, the idea is that you can't uh, – you don't want to say if the goal of science is to undercover, uncover the principles of the subject of the science – you can't say the argument goes. You can't say that um, you have to uncover immaterial being before you do metaphysics, because the immaterial beings that you uncover are in fact the principles of the subject you're studying, right? So you'd have a circular problem, right? So that's an argument that that uh, some philosophers give to say that the position I'm presenting can't be right. Uh, but it seems to me that's just a, it's simply the fallacy of the accident. You you uncover the immaterial beings as principles of motion, and then you say. Uh, and they're immaterial by the way so now you have a problem because now you know that there are things which are not covered by the principles of natural philosophy now you know that there's a more more universal science that there's a science that can study being as such right that being as such is not just another name for a mobile being right? so I think that objection is really just it's just based on the fallacy of the accident as far as I can see um, okay so So the principle at work in this lecture has been this, act is before potency. If we are to come to know, the knowledge we seek must be based on some actual pre-existent knowledge. But our actual knowledge must be, originally, knowledge of material things. This is implied by saying that the proper object of the human intellect is the quiddity of material things. Because the mind attains as its proper object the quiddity of material things, we know everything we know starting from those quiddities. Given then that the quiddity of material things is utterly different from the quiddities of material things, of, the quiddity of immaterial things is utterly different from the quiddities of material things, and that all the names shared by immaterial and material things are equivocal, will never get from one to the other by generalizations or by abstraction or by simple judgment. All these would presuppose that what we are seeking in material being is univocal with material being but if the natures of material and immaterial realities are only analogously alike and the nature, so to speak, of the essay, the unity, etc., of these realities is so as well, then we must get from the material to the immaterial by some necessary link, but one which appeals from what is actually present in material things to what is not actually present there. That is to say, a link which is founded on some form of extrinsic causality. That is to say, either final or or agent cause. So by, by way of an argument. In other words, the only way to see the material as implying the immaterial is by recognizing that the material being needs immaterial principles or causes outside themselves. Neither the first nor the second act of the mind is sufficient. We need the third act, and in particular arguments from effect to cause to establish the reality of immaterial beings. Having seen that reality we of course realize that there are real immaterial natures to be considered. And once we see that there is another more universal, sorry, once we see that, then we see that there is another more universal science, the science of being as such. That's it.